Do you wonder whether the ongoing COVID restrictions in New Zealand are necessary? Entering into the equation, that has changed the rules of the game and the government really hasn't been upfront about how that will change any of their costs and benefits for the policies going forward. For us, I think the mates that the government set in place were actually quite heavy-handed from the get-go. We were always advocating for an alternative where a business, as a business owner or manager, could set their own policy for their staff. And say, Welcome to Pod Defend New Zealand. I'm speaking directly to all New Zealanders today. A neutral political podcast for Kiwis. Today we've one new case of COVID-19 to report and managed isolation. I'm your host, Steve O'Ealy, and aim to create non-biased discussion about issues affecting Aotearoa, New Zealand. You look at what this government is doing to business, strangling the supply of skills through immigration, fair pay agreements, extra costs, minimum wage increases, extra... Poddefin New Zealand is released monthly, and I interview people from all corners of the political spectrum. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for tuning in to Pod Defend New Zealand. I'm your host, Steve O'Ealy, and this week I speak with Brooke Van Velden. She's the Deputy Leader and Health Spokesperson for ACT. We discuss the balance between individual freedom and the safety of the population, why she thinks COVID restrictions imposed by the government are no longer necessary, as well as touching on her work with the End of Life Choice Bill, which she successfully passed in 2019. As always, I aim to remain neutral as host and allow our guest to actually speak. I joined the conversation with Brooke detailing her background prior to entering Parliament. Well, I had a a strange entrance to politics, I think. I was never somebody that went through high school and university being part of youth wings of any political party. I was interested in politics, so I took a few papers when I was at a university, but my real entrance was through economics. That's what I studied at university, and I was really interested in how we can make the world a better place. But I had a focus on environmentalism, and it kind of struck me at the time that a lot of people in my classes didn't, I don't know, it was, it was really strange. They didn't really feel like they were thinking hard about the issue. It was as simple as, well, we don't like the sound of a policy, therefore it must be bad. Or we want to help the world, so we must ban stuff. But unfortunately, the world's not actually that simple. And so the more I started looking into environmental policies, I actually realized that a lot of stuff that the Greens Party and even Labour spout off about wanting to make the world a better place actually makes it worse. And so that's how I got interested in reaching out and looking at different political parties' perspectives. And I found the ACT Party and it really spoke to me. But that still wasn't enough for me to really get involved in politics. I just stumbled upon that by chance because I was singing in Mount Eden, which is a a huge hobby of mine. I love singing. I've always been involved in kind of classical music and part of choirs. We were having a concert in Mount Eden and my friends there said, why don't we go down to the local bar afterwards and we'll celebrate the concert. And so we did. And we just happened to walk into an act party meeting by mistake. And funnily enough, that happened to Damien Smith, who's our number 10 on the act party list as well. He met 
David Seymour at the same bar at a different function. So this is clearly working and is a great outreach strategy. I'm not going to ask the question about whether um, David's spending too much time drinking <laughs> alcohol. <laughs> no, this is before David stopped drinking. I forget when he stopped drinking. I think that's like four years ago or something. So I walked into this meeting by mistake and I actually thought, well, hang on, this is, this is a chance to actually meet a politician. Bearing in mind, I'd never actually met a politician before and asked some genuine questions about the economy. And he answered all my questions and said, why don't you turn up to another meeting? And I did. And I really enjoyed the people that I met. And it was all about freedom of speech, being able to actually articulate thoughts and personal responsibility. And that really spoke to me because at the time it kind of felt like university had become a place where you were becoming a little bit afraid of actually expressing your own perspective or even kind of keeping your own opinions to yourself when you're writing essays because you're afraid that you might not get top marks if your lecturer doesn't actually like what perspective you're bringing to the table. Yes. And, and so I really appreciated the people that I met at those act party functions and I'm glad to say it's still there. You know, people yeah. are open to perspectives and I think that's great. Yeah, it's really concerning at university. There is definitely that feeling that there's only one school of thought that's allowed at university and it's sort of creeping into the workplace as well. And it's interesting to see the change in even how people talk, like on the news and stuff. It's like they're forced to talk a certain way. But yeah, I mean, we could get into a whole conversation around freedom of speech and we actually spoke with the former ACT leader, Jamie White, and we sort of detailed nice. that for quite a bit. But in terms of individual freedoms and stuff, I think something that's obviously very topical at the moment is the COVID mandates and the mm -hmm. COVID protests. So before we get into the protests, what is your perspective around COVID restrictions, especially bearing in mind, if I'm correct, you're the health spokesperson for ACT as well? I am a health spokesperson, yeah. I think there's quite a few perspectives here and I guess niche areas. But when it comes to the protest, I mean, take away the the nitty gritty side of it and the people being spat on as they're walking past, just trying to actually do their jobs. There are genuine concerns from some of the protesters who are there, which are felt throughout the rest of New Zealand. You know, you don't actually have to go very far to meet a cafe owner or somebody who's really concerned that all of their staff will have to isolate because they'll become close contacts yep. and their business operations will stop. Before you get into questions of, well, why are we limiting our freedoms and, and is it justified? And a yep. lot of questions about the mandates. And I think those are genuine concerns that we should talk about uh, and not shy away from and say, oh, well, you know, they're just weirdos and who cares about that? Yeah. There are genuine concerns. And I think we have kind of come to a time in the COVID pandemic where we have to answer the question of whether they are still justified. And I think Absolutely. in a lot of ways, a lot of them aren't. You think of all of the, the restrictions that the government has placed. I mean, the, the first one that comes to mind would be MIQ. Yes. I mean, there is no justifiable reason why we should still have our borders locked. It's crazy. 100%. We've got friends that were saying that they've got more chance of catching COVID entering into Auckland, New Zealand than they do on the plane. And, you know, you're being double vaccinated or triple vaccinated. You're testing negative for COVID and yet you still have to isolate in New Zealand when we've got, you know, an outbreak 
It's ridiculous. Oh, it is. It's insane. It's a policy that at the start made sense when the government said it had an elimination strategy, you know, and we have a clear favor in that we are a Pacific Island and it's really easy to shut ourselves off from the rest of the world to stop COVID entering our borders. I can see the justification yeah. for it at the start. Now we have COVID in the community and you're right. Latest statistics, you have a 190% chance more of catching COVID here than you would at the border. So we're restricting people coming through when they're no threat to New Zealand. And we're seeing yeah. you know, people missing the funerals of their parents, grandparents who haven't even met their grandchildren yet. And we're coming into the third year of this policy. International yeah. students that have just given up and they're not ever going to be coming back. Australia are yeah. now allowing for international students and we're still not allowing for that. It, yeah. it clearly unjustified and it does need to go because the rest of the world is moving on and so should we. And just to go back to the protests, the reality is with any protest is you either have to be so committed that you're going to take a week or two off work or you have to be unemployed or have just lost your job. And the nature of these sort of protests is it is going to bring out the crazies. A poll recently, and I don't know how statistically significant it was, but that some 30% of New Zealanders support the protests. And that doesn't mean to say that we support these idiots that are like throwing shit at the police and, you know, all the other stuff that goes along with it. But I think there's a lot of normal New Zealanders that are kind of saying, why when COVID is clearly, like even people without any health background, they can see that COVID now is a very infectious flu, maybe even statistically less deadly than the flu. We are at the stage where people believe that we should get on and live our lives. But how do we balance individual freedom with the health of the population? So at what point do we say this bug is killing enough people that actually mm. mandates are justified and actually everyone should be getting vaccinated? What's your sort of perspective on that? Yeah, well, I think it's a really interesting question. You know, it's something that policymakers have to do, not just for COVID, but in every policy is that you have to weigh up the costs and the benefits. And throughout this pandemic, we've been hearing an awful lot about the health benefits, but that hasn't been weighed up against all other aspects of the economy and people's mental health as well. You know, you can't just separate everything and say that this is a public health measure for public health reasons without actually justifying it. And I think that's the real tension that we've been seeing with a lot of members of the public being unsure whether the government restrictions are justified because we're not having a lot of transparent and open information. I mean, if you look just this morning at the contact tracing requirements and their capability. You know, we've been hearing for months that the government has the ability to do, you know, up to, I think it was around 60,000 tests per day and more if they can pool the resources. But they've already said that they've run out of capacity and people are having delays. And so at that point, you know, how can you justify locking people down for extended amounts of time in isolation if they're unable to get their tests back and even signing in using their vaccine pass at, at places when they go out for dinner anymore because they're afraid yeah. that they'll then have to isolate for so many days because of the rules. 
once you start yeah. getting into all of these trade-offs in people's lives, you do actually have to justify to people what the health benefit is. I think yes. with Omicron entering into the equation, that has changed the rules of the game and the government really hasn't been upfront about how that will change any of their costs and benefits for the policies going forward. For us, I think the mandates that the government set in place were actually quite heavy-handed from the get-go. We were always advocating for an alternative where a business, as a business owner or manager, could set their own policy for their staff and say, look, we've weighed up the risks and benefits of people working here. We do think everyone should be vaccinated. But there should have also been the alternative where people who don't want to be vaccinated could have had a testing alternative. And I think we would have seen a lot more social cohesion, a lot more trust from everybody rather than this division that's yeah. being created. Yeah. Just to spin it a different perspective, let's say just for argument's sake that COVID killed one in a hundred people that it infected. It's, I know it's less than that, but let's just say, so one in a hundred, it's not like outrageous, but it's still pretty serious. No matter what your age or your health, if one in a hundred people were to die of COVID, if the decision came down to that business owner, would you not potentially feel as a worker if you felt like everyone at your workplace should be vaccinated because it's going to decrease your chance of dying of COVID? Would you not feel like there is sort of place for there to be sort of an overarching government rule as opposed to each individual businesses? I, I feel like there has to be a balance between individual freedoms and what's best for the whole population. So now that we've got Omicron where it, it does appear to be very infectious and a very low death rate, it definitely gets into that area where it should come down to personal freedom. If you're sort of immunocompromised or old person, maybe you need to wear a mask and maybe socially isolate more than a young, healthy person. But when significant numbers of people are dying of a disease, is there a place for government to make rules like a mandate and... Yeah, well, that's an interesting question. Thankfully, we're not in that state. I mean, Omicron is clearly the opposite. Not one in 100 people would die. We would be having a seriously different conversation if it was that case. And one in 100 people would be an insanely high number. I think the state at that point would be justified in public health measures. And you have to look at this trade-off in every policy decision that the government makes. I mean, if you think of even access to medicines, we currently, as a population, pay our taxes to the government to look after us in, in a range of ways. And one of those ways is through medicines access. You know, we have this agency called Pharmac advise all drugs in New Zealand on behalf of New Zealanders, but it doesn't give medicines access to everybody. You know, they are constantly weighing up costs and benefits of whether they should buy a new type of drug versus not buying a new type of drug. And as a result of that policy, some people unfortunately do die. You know, they don't have access to the medicines that would save their lives. And it's the yeah. same as if we think of our traffic policies. We currently pay taxes for road upkeep and maintenance through petrol tax. You know, people have access to state highways and roads around their communities. But you can't keep everybody safe from everything all the time. Unfortunately, yes. we do have a massive death toll on our roads. I think it's around 600 people every year die on our roads. 
that doesn't is it 400 at the moment it it doesn't actually justify shutting down people's access to cars and driving that would be an insane policy so there's always a trade-off that the government is needing to make on how do we justify keeping people safe as much as possible but allowing them to go about their ordinary lives with freedoms and when we're starting to restrict people's access to being able to assemble in gatherings being able to go to churches for example with uh, more than a hundred people at any time any wedding or funeral with more than a hundred people and we're telling people that unless you get uh, a medicine you can't have a job in this particular area we do actually need to know what the justifications on a public health measure are and i think with omicron entering into the equation a lot of these mandates would no longer be justified the yeah. gathering restrictions yeah. definitely won't be justified because yeah. it just spreads so quickly it's not possible to contact trace in the way that we did when we had the first waves because i know that acts all about freedom and personal responsibility but you are saying that if there was for argument's sake omicron this the strain was one in 10 people died you are saying that at a certain level justifiable to have these restrictions and these rules in place you're just saying there has to be a justifiable reason for making these restrictions yeah that is what i'm saying you know we we make trade-offs on on a public policy ground on behalf of all new zealanders who ask us to represent them and pay us through money and taxation to have the best policies for the best cost and benefit for all New Zealanders. When it comes to a public health measure that is at that scale, you would expect the government would step in and and put in place limitations on people's freedoms to keep people safe. But you have to justify the basis for those limitations and also allow for a path out. You know, I think one thing that we've been missing in this whole debate from the government side is actually knowing at what point these limitations will end and when we can actually get our lives back. Where is the hope? Because currently you've got a very small number of people who are justified in saying that they don't actually want to have a a vaccine. I know a lot of people say, oh, that's just crazy people. It is still their right not to have a vaccine. And you shouldn't force that on people. You should allow for an alternative. But... We actually have to ask, you know, if, if we're marginalizing people, saying that they can't go to a gym, can't go to a cafe, can't even go and pick up their kids from school because you have to be vaccinated to walk onto the premise, at what point will they feel like they're part of the team of five million again? And that's yeah. what we've been missing. Mm. Yeah, it's really interesting seeing that perspective because I know that ACT as a party is all about individual freedoms, but it's kind of nice to hear that there is a point where you guys think it is necessary for there to be rules in place, but there just needs to be a justifiable reason for it. I just want to go back to something you said earlier in regards to you know balancing freedom and safety, and it's actually quite topical at the moment, which is the road toll. And the government has recently, or Waka Kotahi has recently released a have zero deaths on the road by 2050, which is nice in theory, But in reality, are we going to reduce the speed limit around the country to 30 k's an hour and ban driving on any road that has a above average death toll? Mm -hmm. 
I mean, it's a completely sort of different to everything else that we're talking about, but it's in the same vein as that we've got to find a balance between perfect safety where everyone is literally wrapped in a mattress to protect them from getting hurt and the other side of the coin which is letting people do whatever they want and then you know people getting shot and killed and not getting charged for it yeah no i think i think that is an interesting point because it kind of goes back to the whole reason why i joined act in the first place it's so easy as a government or a political party to say hey we think something's unacceptable therefore it should be zero any death on the road is a tragedy it's a tragedy for the person who dies and their family and the wider community and anybody who might even stumble upon a crash that has ongoing mental health effects for a lot of people but everything that we do has to be a justifiable limitation and and that's our job as policymakers it's not simple enough to say we just want to reduce all deaths down to zero because that's not actually possible and how much yeah. cost are you potentially putting into it to make that policy versus the benefit that you get out? Uh, and you could yeah. spend hundreds of millions of dollars putting things to keep the roads safe and it might reduce one death. Is that justified? That's yeah. kind of the balance that we're doing every day. So what's currently happening with the protests and the mandate, if Veldon and, and the ACT Party were in parliament or in, in power at least, what would you guys do? Well, I think would be really clear that we would not have put the mandates in to start with. We would have allowed for vaccination or test, allowing business owners the ability to decide what's safe for their own businesses. We would get rid of MIQ. I mean, that's completely out of date. I mean, it's a joke, isn't it? Complete joke. We would get rid of the gathering restrictions. We'd get rid of the vaccine requirements going forward would get rid of the contact tracing and scanning and isolation rules because they clearly don't work. And we would allow for those rapid antigen tests, which everybody that you're talking to in England gets on the daily and allow for people, once they've had their negative result, to be able to go freely about their lives again. But importantly, we would make sure that we're justifying the limitations that we're putting on people's freedoms and giving people hope that life will actually return back to normal but being transparent and open with why those limitations were put there in the first place yeah personal perspective is that the original limitations were good i thought the decision to do lockdown in 2020 was the right one i've got mixed opinions about the the later lockdowns but the sort of feeling that i get from the government is that rather than you know there'd actually be a little bit of respect to say hang on, we put MIQ in place, it was necessary at the time, and we decided to keep going with it despite opposition, but now we've reflected and we actually realise there is no point in doing MIQ. Mm. I think anyone who's involved in the MIQ process now just thinks it's an absolute joke. Like, I saw on Acts on Media, there was the graph of, like, cases of COVID in Auckland, and it was, like, a 1,000, and cases of COVID in MIQ was 25. And why are people going through the rigmarole of having to go online get a slot and then come here and i don't know how long they have to isolate for now i think it is less than it was but there's still an element of isolation when we had the outbreaks in the past we maybe had 10 or 20 cases a day where we've got thousands of cases a day in new zealand it just seems ridiculous 
that we're continuing with this. Oh, it is. It really is. I mean, there there is a strength in being able to say, we put these things in place for a reason. But you know what? Based on new evidence that's coming out, new information that we have, new public health information, this is now what we think is best for everybody. Instead, we're kind of in this gray zone where it feels like the rules are out of date for what we've got. There's not enough information about you know, what's actually happening in the community and what our capacity is. And and I feel like that, that leads to a lot of mistrust. We actually do want to have a government that if, if we're putting restrictions on people's freedoms, justifies it to the people that they're limiting freedoms on. Yeah. yeah. Sort of topic of freedoms. Am I correct in saying that you were behind the end of life choice bill? I was. I worked on that law for about three years, I think. Well, yeah. So the sort of inspiration behind getting the bill started in the first place? Yeah, well, for me, end of life choice was really important because it was about compassion and choice. You know, there are unfortunately a handful of people across New Zealand at any given time who are suffering terribly from a terminal illness, and there is no way uh, to stop that suffering. And Matt Vickers, he summed it up really well and just going back for anybody listening, Matt Vickers was the widower of Lucretia Seals. And Lucretia Seals was who kicked off end of life choice in New Zealand. So Lucretia was a lawyer in Wellington who got a terminal brain cancer. And she wanted the choice to enter life. And her doctor said that he'd be willing to do it if he knew that he wouldn't get in trouble for it. Uh, and so they took the government to court to argue for her right to die. And the court said, you can't do that through the court. Parliament is supreme and only parliament can make these laws. Uh, and so David Seymour actually brought up this bill in his member's bill, the End of Life Choice Act. And Matt Vickers, who I was talking to, in really simple terms, he said, imagine that you were one of the people on the Twin Towers as the plane was crashing. And it's a terrible image. But at, at what point do you make your decision? Do you jump and you know that you're going to die? Or do you wait on the top and you wait to burn? Those are your only two choices. And it's the same for somebody who's had a terminal illness diagnosis. They know that they're going to die. There is nothing you can possibly do to save them. Do you simply say, sorry, mate, it's too bad. My morality and my views on life say that we can't end your life early. You do actually have to suffer right until that last day. And I think that's a yep. cruel choice. Uh, and I'm glad that we passed the law. Yeah, there's not a um, pleasant thing. I'm actually reading a book at the moment called Lifespan by a, a doctor that's arguing that we can actually reverse aging. Oh, wow. And he was saying that there is literally no, there's a sort of like kind of rosy image of the granddad and his sleep with his children holding his hand, but that's not the reality of death. It is a very unpleasant thing. I actually had a big Facebook discussion about this prior to the bull being, and one of the big pushbacks was around people taking advantage of the vulnerable. In terms of the bull itself, a lot of people will just assume that now you're free to go to your doctor and say, can you just put me to sleep? I'm kind of sick of the, all yeah. this. I'm sick of the mandates and I'm, I'm it ready to end my life. What sort of protections are in practice for the more vulnerable? Yeah, so this is a really safe law. I mean, 
it is for those those handful of people. So it's very, very narrow. Firstly, you have to be over 18. Then you have to have a terminal illness that two independent doctors believe will end your life within six months. And yep. you have to be mentally capable to understand the decision that you are making in an advanced state of irreversible decline in physical capability. So what that's all really saying is you have to know what you're signing up for at the time, which means, unfortunately, anybody who's got dementia is ruled out of the equation because they wouldn't yeah, be kind of sad, mentally be capable. And they also have to have a defined illness that not only their own doctor believes will end their life in a short space of time, but a second independent doctor who's examining the patient thinks as well. And on top of that, it's not just enough to have that terminal illness diagnosis. You have to be physically getting worse and your illness is progressing, which is that, that physical decline in capability. So on top yeah. of all of that, you then have to have multiple conversations with doctors, depending on the, the, the span of your illness. And if any of those doctors are afraid that they're not sure about your mental capability, you're referred to a psychiatrist. So this really is for people who are really suffering at their last days. And on average, when you yeah. look at the laws around the world, end of life choice acts throughout other jurisdictions, on average, only end people's lives 10 days before their expected death from their illness. People are very rational and want to live for yes. as long as possible. But yeah. giving this law gives a palliative effect where if you have that piece of paper in front of you and you know that you can ask your doctor to end your life if you're suffering, it's so bad. A lot of people don't actually end up using it because they think, well, maybe tomorrow we're better. Maybe tomorrow we'll be better again. But at least I know I've got that piece of paper. Yeah, it's very good that there are protections in place so people can't take advantage of an old person who maybe has an inheritance fund sitting there. I have to say I'm a little bit disappointed that there isn't something in place and maybe there is ways around this. But for someone who's, and you hear a lot of stories of like someone getting really old and really declining, you know, from basically old age and they might not have a defined illness or they have a defined illness, but by the time they're in that state where really it's probably better that they're put out of their misery, they might not be in the position to make any decisions themselves. Is there a sort of power of attorney effect where someone could make, be put in the position to make that uh, decision for them? No, so this law is, is really quite strict. You have to be the person asking for it. And not only at that first encounter with the doctor, you have to ask for it throughout the whole process right until the day that it's actually administered. I guess a, a difference of perspective than what the Dutch do. So so what you're really talking about with, with people declining and, and having an advanced power of attorney is kind of what the Netherlands model is. They are a far more liberal country than we are. Actually passed through parliament here. Yeah, you know, it was hard yeah. enough to try and convince 61 of our colleagues that people who are suffering terribly from a terminal illness in their last days should be allowed choice. It's interesting, though, because I think there was a lot of fear-mongering around the end-of-life choice bill, but that it is a very defined group of people. And I don't know if you know the statistics around how many people are choosing 
to end their life in New Zealand a year now that the bill is available. But I imagine, mm. given that it's for very specific terminal illnesses, I imagine it's quite a small. It is really group of small. People. The early statistics that I've seen say that it's only around 20 or so people who have actually gone through with the process. And we were in the first year that around a thousand people would inquire for end of life choice. Not all of the people who would inquire about it would actually end up being eligible. So all of a sudden you're getting a very small number becoming even smaller. And then from that, not everybody who's eligible and gets the piece of paper will actually go through with it. So three months yeah. in with a, a handful of people, it's looking very small. Oh, so it's literally only been out for three months. Yeah. So it's been a really long process, but it was originally introduced in 2015 into parliament, passed through at the referendum at the general election. But then yeah. only became a law one year after the referendum result. And so that yeah. was because we'd put in place all of the policy and the background, we then allowed a whole year to allow the Ministry of Health and any doctors who wanted to to participate to get upskilled um, so that they knew all the process. Because it's not the type of law that you'd want to pass overnight without making sure you've yes. got checks and balances in place. Yeah, Brooke, um, before you go, where can we find out more about you and the ACT Party? Oh, all over the place. For me specifically, I've got Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, and Twitter. So you can find me on any of those by just Googling my name. And if you really want to know more about ACT, I would suggest that you come along to a public meeting. And you never know, we might have another one in a bar. And you could end up standing for the ACT Party one day, but... I welcome everybody to come along and have a chat at any public function that we put on. That was Deputy Leader and Health Spokesperson for the ACT Party, Brooke Van Velden. The COVID mandates is a very divisive issue. When they first came in, based on the severity of disease, especially the original COVID and Delta strains, I thought the rules were justified. Now, with Omicron being highly infectious and far less deadly, I think we've reached the point where public health becomes your own individual responsibility. That is, if you want to socially isolate or wear a mask, that's entirely up to you based on your own risk profile. This is my opinion. I don't know the entire statistics around Omicron. It's just based on data I have seen overseas, where hospitalization rates are less than one in a thousand cases. It does open up an interesting discussion around at what point the health of the population outweighs individual freedom. There is no right or wrong answer, but what do you think? If you want to give your two cents worth, share the episode on Twitter or Instagram and leave us your thoughts. Thanks as always for supporting Pod Defend New Zealand. Next month I'll be chatting to Lance Burdett about being a crisis negotiator for the New Zealand police, as well as his mental health advocacy work. See you next month. Thanks for tuning in to Pod Defend New Zealand. You can find us on Twitter at NZ underscore pod or Instagram at NZ underscore pod. If you're feeling extra generous, please give us five stars on the podcast app. Kia ora.